Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm former double agent and Newsweek editor-at-large, Naveed Jamali, and you're listening to Declassified, brought to you by Newsweek. Declassified is an exploration of what it means to be secure and of the people all over the world who are quietly working to keep us safe. In my career in the intelligence community, I served as a double agent and as an intelligence officer. My goal is to help explain the things that you can see, the proverbial iceberg above the waterline, and let you know what is below it. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. At the time of this recording, we're staring down the barrel of a third House committee hearing on the January 6th insurrection. A cornerstone of these hearings thus far has been the rhetoric used to describe the attack on the Capitol, both before and after it happened. Powerful mainstream conservatives arguing for an undoing of the democratic process. As we've discussed in the show many times, you know, there's a troubling trend of far-right language, homophobia, xenophobia, sexism, racism, entering the conservative mainstream. And just last week, in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, a group of extremists affiliated with the Patriot Front were arrested over what appears to have been an attempt to violently disrupt a gay pride parade. Chris Goldsmith monitors the online discussions of these very kinds of people for a living. He's an Army veteran. He's also the CEO of Asparvarius, an intelligence firm, and the founder of Task Force Butler. Chris sees not only a troubling, inflammatory, violent language emerging from these groups, but also a very real national security threat that he worries isn't being taken seriously enough. Let's start with, you know, I think for a lot of people, you're an expert in, in this domain, but for a lot of people, they hear white supremacist or white nationalist, and they see, you know, different names coming across the screen, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, just to name a few. And while clearly there's a connective tissue that that really brings these groups together. And they certainly focus on this idea of racial superiority. Um, there are differences. And so I want to start by asking you, 
what is the threat landscape as far as these groups go? Who is the most dangerous? Who is the most organized? So um, key to these organizations is, uh, is the belief among members that they are entitled to something in America that they are not getting. And uh, that is kind of the, the uh, underlying idea behind white supremacy. It is disgruntled people who uh, have been failures in their personal lives, who are seeking another uh, group to blame, and the white supremacist ideology ends up being a, a convenient conspiracy theory for, for them to latch onto. So <clears throat> whereas there, there are like the Oath Keepers that are not... Um, you know, on its face, an explicitly white supremacist organization. Uh, it's it's often something that um, we hear from people who've left the organization. The white supremacy is something that they're introduced to after they've been members for a while. Um, when it comes to the Proud Boys, it it is. You know, they they call themselves Western chauvinists. That is code for. Uh, believing in you know, uh, the supremacy of, of the white race and specifically European um, descendants of European settlers. Now, you know, they, they like to put out um, front men like Henry Enrique Tario, um, someone who's biracial as like, oh, well, you know, if, if this guy is or was our leader, how could we be white supremacists? Well, you know, in, in every, um, supremacist movement in every uh, fascist movement, there are people who uh, serve as as those convenient foils of uh, of you know working towards white supremacy, but not necessarily being uh, among the group that that would benefit the most from it. So, okay, so there's that makes a lot of sense, and this this idea of this unifying theme of, you know, that they've, something's been taken from them. But, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of, and the other thing, you know, we hear white supremacists and white nationalists. And I think there, I know there's a difference. Just very quickly, can you sort of explain in very simple terms, you know, white supremacists, KKK, there are these groups in like Idaho that are, that are, you know, you think about Timothy McVeigh, for example, that are, uh, you know, white nationalists, this idea of separatists and, and, can you explain a little bit about what both of those groups, how, how they have separate goals? Can you explain the differences there? Yeah, so, the, so there's actually a, a bit of flux right now going on in the, uh, in the white supremacist and white nationalist movement. Whereas in the past, uh, in the pre-internet era, uh, white supremacists were generally um, were focused locally. Um, you know, they could spread their ideology through leaflets, through newsletters, um, you know, <laughs> through, through the prison bars uh, to their fellow inmates. They, they had somewhat limited opportunities to, to spread the ideology. Today, uh, with uh, white nationalism, we are seeing, um, we're seeing a global movement uh, of white nationalist organizations from uh, all over the world, 
from Australia and, and New Zealand through Europe uh, to the to the U.S. and Canada. And these folks are of the belief that they're they can independently create uh, white states that that don't need to be concerned with um, with folks who aren't white outside of what their um, desired sphere of influences. You know, there are, there are groups like Patriot Front who uh, don't consider Hawaii and Alaska to be uh, relevant to their organization, even though they're American white nationalists, neo-Nazis. Uh, they have a specific brand of, of white nationalism that basically says that, you know, those those specific states, those territories, those lands can belong to somebody else. They don't care. I think that's such an important point, right? Because when we talk about you, <clears throat> you mentioned that there's clearly, you know, this is an international movement, um, but it is also focused on the hyper local level, as, as you, you discussed. And there's, you know, there's clearly this national communication. I mean, when I think about, the Patriot Front in, in the arrest and Patriot Front of Idaho, which was you see all these guys dressed the same <clears throat> being pulled out of a U-Haul van. But it turns out, for example, that that there were people from 13 different states in that group. So it's are we seeing this? These groups focus on local events like like we saw in California where they tried to disrupt or they did disrupt, uh, you know, a children's, you know, reading uh, are we seeing these national targeting and and national groups going to local things and focused on local things? Is that the new th- threat matrix or new sort of, you know, the way they're approaching this stuff? Yeah. So the, the new, um, the new gay panic um, that is, that is being, um, that is inspiring these extremist groups, whether it be the Proud Boys or White Lives Matter or Patriot Front to show up to pride events uh, is largely being driven um, not by the people who are you know, branded by the mainstream as white supremacists, um, but those who clearly ascribe to the ideology and have huge platforms. Um, number one being Tucker Carlson of Fox News. Tucker Carlson has, uh, in in recent months, along with figures like Joe Rogan, been promoting um, this this Twitter account called Libs of TikTok, and Libs of TikTok has created essentially uh, like a terrorist's hit list by promoting uh, the times, dates, locations of Pride events, branding them. Uh, with slanderous language about things like grooming children. Uh, And then when, you know, they get temporarily banned by Twitter for stochastic terrorist language, uh, they go crying to Tucker Carlson, who then makes them to be the victim, um, you know, of, of big tech censorship. So these extremist organizations are acting on the same stuff that's being promoted on mainstream platforms like Twitter, uh, by mainstream, you know, the most successful, uh, you know, quote, news personality in, in America, Tucker Carlson, and 
they're basically being given cover uh, by Fox News. You know, they they are, <laughs> you know, the, the GOP has adopted this extremist language about the LGBT community being groomers of, of targeting and victimizing children. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm trying, um, trying to choose my words carefully because I, I don't want to come across as, as alarmist, but I am someone who studies this day in and day out. And I can tell you that the GOP, uh, the stochastic terrorist language that they have embraced as a party uh, with people like the third ranking Republican in the House, Elise Stefanik, using pedo uh, on Twitter, this type of stuff is more dangerous than any rhetoric uh, that, that we've seen in, in at least my lifetime coming out of GOP. The rhetoric about a stolen ele- uh, election that um, went to January 6th, like that, that stewed online for a few months. It started uh, in inspired protests around the country. Some, you know, attempted armed takeovers of states' capitals, right? Like we saw how fast that narrative about a stolen election led to violence and deaths. Well, this summer with the GOP focused on this, the LGBT community is, is targeting and victimizing children thing, like that being the mainstream narrative, we are, you know, perhaps days or weeks away from the GOP just straight up inspiring uh, a terrorist attack against Pride event. I mean, look, we're talking about this in the context of the January 6th hearings. You can't watch those hearings and see. Uh, it's clear to me that there's a, a very strong case. And I personally believe that, that you know, that this was. Uh, a directed and coordinated um, effort here. And part of that directed and coordinated effort included, you know, as we saw in the video, these very carefully planned out stacks of three percenters. We now know that there's video of a, a congressman, a sitting member of Congress, giving tours to people on the day before the insurrection who were taking pictures of checkpoints in a, in a manner that I would call, you know, intelligence collection. So, you know, th- clearly these groups have a history of violence, but this question of being directed and, and talking about January 6th, you, you talk about, you know, using words and, and we, you know, there's been plenty of debate when someone does the okay signs, it's it white power, is it just something? And I would, I would put out there that, you know, while those things are debatable, what do you say, Chris, to the fact that, look, the January 6th you know, select committee is laying out evidence that this wasn't just an inspired attack, right? But rather that this was a coordinated and planned attack. These groups were coordinated, coordinating amongst themselves, the, you know, that historically these groups didn't you know, necessarily participate together, but they met beforehand, that there was a plan that, you know, it, what do you say about that? Like that these are violent groups that aren't just being sought after and sort of this, you know, not in a wink, but this idea that there is some larger directed and connected and ordered, frankly, um, efforts within those who seek to use violent groups to, you know, instill their political. What do you, what do you say to that? I mean, that's clearly what January 6th committee is laying out. Yeah. So there are very clear historical parallels here. And uh, what's called Godwin's Law, like the first person to refer to Nazis is, is the loser of the debate. Well, guys, we've like that guy, Godwin, who 
you know, coined the phrase has, has come out and said like, no, full stop. Like this, this is not <laughs> like we've, we've passed right. the point. Like it is okay to compare these people to Nazis. Right. So as my job is to hang out in neo-Nazi chat rooms all day, every day, and to analyze threats. And uh, when I use the term Nazi or nationalist, socialist, or fascist, I'm using the same terms that these Americans use to describe their own ideology, you know, be behind closed doors, right? Where they think that the mainstream isn't going to expose them. These fascist, self-described fascist gangs are following the, the same playbook uh, that the, the fascists, the nationalist socialists, the Nazi party of Germany did. Uh, the the beer hall push was was a failed attempted coup uh, that that Hitler um, you know sought power with. It took ten years between that attempted coup uh, that push to uh, to have Hitler eventually become Germany's chancellor and for uh, for the Holocaust to happen. Well, well can, can I just can I just stop you there? Because I, I think I, I listen because I totally agree with you. Um, but I think that there is something that gets lost when we bring in the historical references, right? There's something, mm-hmm. you know, we talk about World War II. There seems to be this glossing over it. It, it, it sort of, as you said, it, the first person to use the word Nazis losing, you know, losing the argument. And you know, there's a, a an extended truth to that. So I would say though that while there's a big difference between people who sit in a chat room and use uh, bigoted, sexist, you know, homophobic, transphobic, you know, words. But this is not just that. This is something very, very different. And I think part of the challenge here is to convey to people the actual danger of this threat. And the danger in this threat is, is you're right, there's a historical context. And we've seen it before. And it's, you know, it's certainly there's an attempt to recreate that. But there's something else. It's not just this historical context. You know, just last week, the Department of Homeland Security put out a bullet, and the, and the bulletin. And that, now these these come out with regu- regularity. And I, I read these and, you know, I, I see them as CYA, right? It's the D- DHS yeah. saying, you know, uh, there's a threat, but they're really saying it's un, it's nonspecific that, you know, I'm just going to read it. It says, in the coming months, we expect the threat environment to become more dynamic as several high profile events could be exploited to justify acts of violence against a range of possible targets. So again, nonspecific. These targets could include yeah. public gatherings, faith-based institutions, schools, racial and religious minorities, government. So it's basically anything that is, you know, under the, the blanket of woke. I mean, it, literally anything. Yeah. Threat actors have recently mobilized to violence due to factors such as personal, personal grievances, reactions to current events, and adherence to violent extremist ideologies, including racially or ethically motivated or anti-government, anti-authority violence. So that is such a broad thing. And I, and I, like you said, you're someone who hands out in chat rooms daily. This is your life. Mm-hmm. I don't think people sufficiently appreciate the threat, nor are they scared of it. We, I think we do a disservice, and this is my opinion, in trying to communicate to the average person how dangerous this is when we sort of fall back to World War II, because I just think that they think of this as history. Well, it can't happen. It, it can never happen again, yeah. right? That was mm-hmm. the, so talk to me. You're in these chat rooms. You're seeing these groups. You're bouncing between them. This isn't just hate speech, right? This is something else. How can you, to someone who doesn't, who doesn't live in the world that you live in, how do you explain how dangerous this is in terms of violence and in terms of 
you know, aspirational desire to enact violence and ability to carry out that violence. How do you quantify that? Walk us through that. So, uh, I mean, this feels like a million years ago, but last year we spent a lot of time talking about how uh, the Proud Boys were showing up at school board uh, meetings and shutting them down with violence, attacking people that they perceived to be Antifa. And it wasn't just Proud Boys. It was people who were watching Fox News who thought that uh, the same child, uh, the same teachers that they now suddenly want to give a ton of guns to, were grooming quote their their children uh, into the you know what they refer to as the gay agenda, right? These proud boys who were shutting down school board meetings uh, are are now joining uh, Republican committees at the local level. The New York Times, you know, recently did a piece about how. There are several members of of the Proud Boys, like the black and yellow wearing, uh, okay hand symbol, uh, you know, Proud Boys on the Republican committee for Miami Dade. And rather than this New York Times expose about how there are members of a violent gang that was involved in an attempted coup, you know, at the United States Capitol on, on January 6th, they're saying, the Republicans are saying, well, we welcome diversity of thought. <laughs> diversity of thought, like a violent coup, attempted murder, uh, the end of democracy, like th- those I, I used to be a Republican. I don't I remember those being like the Republican tenets of, of ideology. But but here we are. Like there are powerful committees at the local level that are not being infiltrated by by the uh, by the Proud Boys and other extremist organizations. They're welcoming these extremists onto their onto their boards that recommend candidates that endorse candidates that move money towards candidates for office. This is. So, I mean, uh, is this mainstreaming of it? Is that, is that the danger is that it's becoming, it's so, it's so accepted by the GOP that it's actually, they're looking, they look at this as a diversity, as a diversity of, of thought <laughs> and welcome it into the big tent. Yeah. I mean, this, this is a direct quote. Like, but, but, so, I'm not making, I'm I not believe exaggerating. It. So on this, on these, in these chat rooms, these people, is, Okay, so there's one thing to try to gain, you know, um, uh, with David Duke, right? Like the head of the KKK who wanted to run for a governor. I can't remember what he's running for. But are we seeing like when these people talk, they're clearly not talking about, you know, Chris, frankly, they're not talking about like, what can we do to fundraise to get our people elected? Right. They're talking about violence. I mean, that's the thing, isn't I mean, they're, they're bread and butter. And I'm sure there will always be. Look, there's always bigots and racists who I hate to say it, who get put onto some school board or elected in or make it through. Um, But the danger here is not that they're just trying to mainstream ideas, which is, look, that is the, it it is that Tucker Carlson and Fox are mainstreaming them. And that these people at the end of the day are looking to carry out violent acts. Isn't that, I mean, isn't that their root uh, motivation is violence? Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we we have seen over the past few years where it was like really shocking that Marjorie Taylor Greene or one of the other, these other extremist candidates would have the Oath Keepers or the Three Percenters or the Proud Boys showing up as uh, as security for their campaign events. That is becoming 
like a totally acceptable thing within the Republican Party. And in places where the Republican Party uh, has full control of of government uh, and is popular, um, you know, regionally, police are starting to to look at these violent gangs as uh, as auxiliary police. The Uvalde uh, shooting, the, right. the funerals, those cops had a biker gang help them pull security. Like this, this is nuts. This is absolutely crazy that police in this country are enlisting biker gangs. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> go, ba- go back, Chris, because this is not something I'm aware of. So not just a biker gang, but like, th- look, we've, this is something I've talked to police quite a bit, you know, being in, when I lived in Seattle. Mm-hmm. you know, talking to Seattle police officers. And they said, look, one of the things historically is that we would come to protest between, I'm putting air quotes now, Antifa and, mm-hmm. and some of these, you know, uh, the Proud Boys and, and those groups, because a lot of those groups are, are, are West Coast. And what he would say is that the, you know, those groups would be not just compliant, they'd be supportive of, you know, the, first of all, they're flying, you know, back the blue, which is in this day and age when police have, you know, they, as, a, as I think a profession, the, the profession of policing has taken a pretty serious perception, you know, kick in the pants, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. cops are not doing like they're, you know, again, even those who are doing the right thing, I think it's, it's, a, it's a difficult profession right now. So they have these groups that are, that are, you know, supportive of them. And more importantly, when they come to these, you know, protests where these two groups are, are facing off at each other, the, the right wing groups are are compliant. They're you know they'll they the police tell them to cross the street. They'll cross the street. You know they'll listen to them. That they that and they'll say, look, we're supportive of you. You know they'll and I think that I understood from that that the police were much more um, I don't want to say complacent, but far more. Well, they were complacent, but they were far more um, supportive just because of the way that these groups you know like the Proud Boys would react to police. But that is one thing. Now. Clearly, you know, when we look at the, you know, the video of January 6th, I think it's an eye opening event for police. But then we look at, you know, Kurt Lane in, in Idaho that um, they pull these these, you know, these guys out and they're just, you know, there's there's no they don't resist. They don't t- talk back. They just they follow the commands and the police are just, you know, here are these, th- you know, 30 plus people on their way to enact violence against a, a, a peaceful celebration. And the police are like, <laughs> I mean, God, we should ha- we should see police or you know treat people like that all the time. Um, yeah, it it is. But you're but what you're talking about is something even further. Of you know, look, we've seen in January sixth active duty military. We've seen retired military. We've seen retired police. The retired NYPD, for example. But talk to me about how. I mean, are there proud boys who are? like members of police departments are these, you know, I get it that these are LARPers, that these are people that like aspire to be these like, you know, military vet bros, but is there an actual, I mean, are these actually coordinated? I mean, is this a problem that police don't view? We had general honor, Let me, let me just put this quote Mm -hmm. up there uh, on. And he was talking about that police. And and this is exact word. Police didn't take this threat seriously because they saw this as a group of uh, excited white people. That's how we put it. And that as a result, police sort of downplayed it. it, Is that what we're seeing? There's there's a hand in glove like relationship between these groups and police. Well, in in certain cities, there there are cops who are members of these extremist organizations Um, like there. If if you just Google 
uh, LAPD gangs, you're probably going to be surprised at what you find um, about like gang affiliations between members of the LAPD. Um, as someone who, you know, does risk assessments anytime that I uh, see the, the Proud Boys planning an event in Los Angeles, what am I writing every time that like the anti-fascists are, are going to be on the street, Proud Boys are going to attack them and the cops are going to stand there and watch it until it reaches the point that the Proud Boys are, are doing a ground impact. And like they've got one anti-fascist who's isolated and they're beating them with weapons. And at that point, are there arrests? No, the cops pull them off and basically are looking at it like, ah, you showed that guy, uh, you know, that anti-fascist uh, a lesson. I mean, this this type of um, of complacency around these fascist organizations is a result of um, is a result of the psychology of of policing being difficult right now you know when you're uh, and of course you know there is extreme diversity among police the same way that there is a, a, of military right like there are people of all sorts of backgrounds all sorts of belief systems so i don't want to generalize every single cop um of course but, you know there there are like very clear examples of uh of consistent permissive um environments that police create so that these right-wing extremist organizations can go after their perceived enemies. And it is not until a day like January 6th that a lot of these cops realize, oh, wait, these people aren't on my side. As much violence as I've been allowing them to practice in the streets, they're willing to use against me, the police officer, uh, when they think that I am... Um, a representative of an illegitimate state, right? Like that's that's how these cops were getting beat with Blue Lives Matter flags on January sixth. Like wondering how did we get here? I, and and I, I I think it was eye opening. But again, I go back to you're in these chat rooms. I mean, our police look the CIA, every intelligence agency. You better believe they're all over places where they're, you know, transnational, internet, you know, domestic, transnational, international terrorist groups. I mean, we just saw an operation carried out in Syria by the, you know, by God knows who um, and U.S. forces. But, you know, why don't we see that same level of prioritization? I understand that there's a difference between domestic, you know, in terrorism and this in, from a legal standpoint. But you understanding this, is there there's a prioritization. I mean, it clearly, listen, I don't, I mean, you know, chat rooms, you're allowed to, they're, they're public chat rooms. You can look at someone's yeah. face. You don't need a warrant for that. It's a public facing thing. So I don't know why aren't police, why aren't they in there with you? Why aren't they watching these things? I mean, it's, you know, these, if these groups are committed to violence and we have a DHS warning, this non-specific general warning, why aren't local state and federal law enforcement all over this stuff every day, all the time. So my my experience in dealing with law enforcement is that any time that it has to do with uh, with domestic threats of violence and white people, they're like, oh, the First Amendment it it protects absolutely everything. The FBI does not want to hear from someone like me until I am identifying a specific individual who's going to commit a specific act of violence at a specific 
time and date against the specific target. Stochastic terrorism is not against the law. So you can have people calling for the murder of, of Jews. You can have people calling for uh, violence against pride events like this libs of TikTok person and, um, you know, Tucker Carlson are, are doing. None of that is against the law. So they, you know, whereas if these people were, you know, Muslim, like, of course, the FBI wouldn't feel like the First Amendment is, is you know, applies. But well, just a point of clarification, because this is not I always get. In. You're absolutely right in terms of prioritization. But look, clearly, if I write a check to the KKK versus writing a check to, to I'm just saying ISIS and the, you know, one is considered providing material support to a terrorist organization. The other is, um, you know, a free protected free speech thing. And in fact, I probably could get a tax deduction by giving to the, you know, a charitable group like the KK, you know, the, the KKK is a charitable, you know, 501c3, whatever. So yeah. there is that legal distinction, right? There is, you know, look, we are a nation of laws. We are a nation of, we have a constitution. There's clearly, a, you know, the First Amendment, freedom of speech. But Chris, this goes beyond freedom of speech. You know, you, the whole ad, old adage of you can't yell fire in a movie theater, right? Mm-hmm. These people are advocating violence. Now, granted, I understand the FBI is saying unless you have direct, because basically they can't prosecute anyone. But, yeah. you know, when it comes to intelligence, when it comes well, no, to- No, no, no. So let me, let me, I, I'm sorry, to, I have to- No, interrupt. no, no, please. The F- the FBI can prosecute paper crimes. They're choosing not to. Right, right. It's a, it's a, it's a, okay. It's a harder, it's a, it's a steeper hill to climb up to for prosecution, I'm sure. It you is. Know. No, so it, it's not. Paper crimes are, are the easy crimes because there's evidence. But like that, right. that is why they're called paper crimes. So, you know, an example would be um, Patriot Front's recent arrest uh, in Idaho for conspiracy to riot. I have, you know, there, there's tons of public evidence about how Patriot Front trains for violence. The most recent video released by Patriot Front ahead of, ahead of this event was them training, beating the hell out of each other, using shields as weapons, practicing as if they were a military unit for violence against crowds. That, uh, that planning document, the op order that they were found with, the seven-page op order that Thomas Rousseau had had typed up and taken with him. That is, you know, was evidence for the state level charges that they've received right now. The FBI can pick that up and they can prosecute it. They, the DOJ, the FBI are making a choice to sit back and let this fester and wait until people get killed. Like that, that is a conscious choice. There is, you know, when these people all traveled across state lines, there was only one local 30 other people traveled from across state lines. They, uh, in order to be a member of Patriot Front, you have to pay Thomas Rousseau money so he can send you propaganda posters and stickers that you are then instructed to uh, vandalize public and private property with in order to intimidate targeted populations, aka, you know, engage in hate crimes you photograph it or videotape it and then send it back to headquarters. We have all of this evidence in the public domain. These, they're, so we're talking about mail fraud. We're talking about uh, interstate conspiracies to commit hate crimes. The, the FBI and the DOJ could look at what's out in the public record 
the record of property destruction engaged in by Patriot Front, they documented it and exposed themselves, the individuals doing it. The FBI and DOJ can walk into a local police uh, department in, um, in Washington state uh, where they de destroyed a, a pride mural in Olympia and documented themselves doing it and say, hey, why don't we work together to take out the four or five local members here? Why don't we, you know, uh, press charges for an interstate conspiracy to commit thousands of dollars of property damage? Like we've reached felonies at this point. It is conscious choice for the FBI, right. for the DOJ, for these local police departments to let this white supremacist violent organization fester and grow until people get killed. I think, you know, this is the problem is that, you know, the difference between intelligence and law enforcement is that law enforcement, conventional law enforcement, you know, in its most basic element, a crime is committed. Someone calls 911. The police investigate. They look to identify um, and arrest, you know, the perpetrator. And then it's up to the legal system to uh, prosecute them. And it's very reactionary. I don't mean that in a negative way. That is just the way it is. Whereas intelligence is we don't deal with reaction, right? The goal is to look forward and to whether it's intelligence for the CIA or intelligence for Wall Street, right? You're looking to predict a future state. You're looking mm -hmm. for evidence and what we would call indications of an event that's about to occur. And, you know, in intelligence, it, you know, if you're successful, the event doesn't occur. Like you stop it. You don't prosecute. So the goal here isn't to arrest someone and prosecute them. The goal is to identify an event and stop it before it happens. And, you know, in, in my previous life in counterintelligence, that was, that was a big thing. Like we weren't looking to build cases against the Russian, Russian intelligence and, and bring them to trial. We were looking to literally to stop them. There, there, this is a thing that I, I feel when it comes to domestic terrorism, where in what you're saying is that law enforcement is literally waiting for something to happen to catch them in the act or sadly to identify and prosecute them once they've actually acted. How do we change that perception? How do we make it okay for law enforcement to focus on stopping this stuff as opposed well, to reacting to it? These, these arrests in, in Idaho is the first example of police acting on intelligence in, in real time to prevent a riot known by a known uh, violent white supremacist organization. Like Patriot Front does this every, especially every patriotic holiday, like the last video before the arrests that, that Thomas Rousseau of Patriot Front uh, released was a bunch of his guys beating the hell out of each other and, you know, using shields as weapons saying that we are training because when we meet the enemy on independence day, the enemy won't, you know, be lenient on us. Right. Thomas right. Rousseau published this himself saying that I'm going to go out on independence day and engage in a riot. Like <laughs> the, of all places for the police in Idaho to take this seriously, it, for that to have happened tells me that maybe the FBI 
is actually reaching out to these local police departments and helping them understand the severity of the threat. Mm. Mm. What we saw in Idaho and and the um, uh, a representative of the sheriff's office during the press conference said, we weren't going to wait for a felony in this instance. We had the intelligence. We you know knew that these people were armed and we knew that they were heading towards the pride parade with intent to disrupt it. We weren't going to stand around and wait until violence happened to act. That can and should happen on Independence Day when Patriot Front shows up in their you know, U-Haul truck and attempts to commit hate crimes and intimidate people based on their, you know, religion, race, uh, and, or, and origin, uh, and, you know, sexuality. So, right. So, I mean, look, you're, this is going to keep clearly they, 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 the Patriot Front and, and similar groups still have this intent to do this, you know, in the, in the last few minutes here, Chris, do, do you think, I mean, is this, going to keep happening and do you feel confident now that the police law enforcement i should say are making this switch to be proactive to stop these groups no i one (laughs) one incident um does not make a trend you know i i am immensely thankful of the decision makers in that police department in idaho but until i see you know the dc police Watching Patriot Front or uh, the Proud Boys or any other extremist organization like planning to commit violence and wrapping them up before, you know, they take their baseball bats to the heads of innocent individuals. Like until that happens, my faith in police uh, policing on this issue has not been restored. Hmm. And my last question to you is, where do you think I mean, there's going to be another attack. There's going to be another attempt here. Mm-hmm. Where should we be concerned that these groups, if you were to take that DHS warning that, that they put out their, their threat assessment and you were to make it more specific, what would you add to that specificity? Um, so my, you know, one of my primary focuses has been Patriot Front for years since I infiltrated them back in 2020. Uh, so I, you know, have a... I have a natural bias towards focusing on that organization. I would expect because they've been in DC like twice in the last six months, uh, they got run out of Philadelphia last independence day um, that they're probably going to target maybe New York city, though. I don't think they're comfortable in a big city like that. Most likely Boston. Uh, We've seen the national socialist club NSC, uh, a neo-Nazi organization in Boston able to uh, go out and, you know, uh, pick fights and, and vandalize property during the day in front of police, like on a weekly basis in Boston for the last few months. I would expect Patriot Front is looking at that and saying that looks like a, a friendly place for us to go and, and you know, uh, engage in some light domestic terrorism. As far as uh, the more broad landscape, you know, throughout the month of June, we can absolutely expect continued attacks uh, by Patriot Front, uh, by Proud Boys, by all sorts of local militias, Patriot Prayer, all throughout the United States. I mean, they, the, the groomer narrative has been so mainstreamed in the Republican Party that when violence happens, 
the general like conservative public has been so radicalized uh, by these like victimizing children, fake narratives that it's going to be really permissive. I mean, people are, are going to get hurt and you're going to see Republican politicians come out and, and start defending the violence. I mean, that's, that's, that's where the Republican party is, has moved recently into adopting this extremist groomer uh, language to make targeting of the LGBT community legitimate in, in uh, as uh, diversity of political opinion as uh, the Republican committee from Miami Dade would say, you know, uh, this is my personal opinion, but I think the other uh, unfortunate target that will come out of here with the expected overturning of Roe v. Wade is I suspect that we're going to see violence against um, abortion providers and uh, women's health uh, providers in states that Uh, allow these services. I have a feeling that this will become something where other people will travel to attack. We've long history of violence against abortion providers and and reproductive health providers. So I I do worry that, you know, these are groups that have uh, espoused violence, have shown their ability to uh, enact and carry out violence. And, um, you know, there's there's just it just doesn't feel like we're taking this threat seriously, or at least law enforcement, you know, still I, I dare I say it, I still think they're prioritizing the transnational threat as opposed to the domestic one. And yep. if, if the money, yeah. look, if the money's not there, the priority's not there. It, to me, it says that's what, how law enforcement works. If you gave the money, I, regardless of what they think, and you said this money had to be spent on this specifically, I think you might start seeing a, a change of, of action here, but we're not doing that. It's just the federal yeah. dollars so, aren't going in. So, you know, I, I have, um, you and I have been talking about this stuff for, uh, I don't know, years at this point. Um, And every time an interview goes live, I have veterans reaching out to me saying like, Hey, put me in coach. How can I help? I have finally developed a program to help veterans uh, get involved in researching and taking action to counter extremism, both on the local and national level. It's called task force Butler. Um, the, the website's a little bare bones right now, but if people go to taskforcebutler.org, if they're a veteran, they can sign up on the interest form. Um, it, it's going to be a bit slow moving. You know, we have security concerns. We have to vet everyone extremely thoroughly. If people want to donate and support, like these, these programs take resources. We could use all the support in the world that we can get. But we're hoping to, over time, uh, use this nonprofit to create um, a, a sophisticated uh, team of veterans around the country who are performing the necessary research uh, to document these these extremist organizations as they plan and execute things like hate crimes and more broadly violence so that we can um, either expose them so that their communities are, are kept safe knowing if there's a Nazi down the street it's always a good thing. Um, or, you know, in, in the best case scenario, we establish uh, basically a case for law enforcement to move on these people. Well, there you go. I mean, I think this is an important thing to, uh, to, to make clear because, uh, unfortunately, veterans historically with these groups have been targeted and have in some cases uh, willingly join. I do think that there is, you know, a disinformation campaign that um, this is something we've talked about 
uh, with other other veterans, including one from Military Times, Drew, um, you know, with this idea that for many, I think when they leave the service, there's a desire to continue that service. And, and look, places like the, you know, the three percenters or these other groups, Oath Keepers, where it's sort of these pseudo military um, structure, I think in some cases, I think for some, for some, it, it is, of course, the language and, and the motive, but there's also this belief of, you know, wanting to rejoin and belong to something. And I think that that is, a, you know, in, in done in the wrong way, it can be a very dangerous, uh, manipulative act. And it, it is very concerning to see that veterans um, are joining these groups or, or in some cases duped. And, you know, yeah. So I, I appreciate your efforts. And, and Chris, listen, thanks so much for, for stopping in today and really unpacking this. And um, once again, where can people find you and, and your group and, and what, where can they find you on Twitter and social media? Yeah. So people can find me on Twitter uh, at Chris, K-R-I-S, Goldsmith85, uh, or they can check out Task Force Butler at taskforcebutler.org. Uh, there, veterans can sign up on our interest form and, and uh, hopefully you know, get some training uh, to become an effective researcher against extremism. Um, and you know, everyone else who wants to support us can, can donate there so that we could, um, so that we could you know, move this program forward as, as fast as possible. Well, Chris, thanks so much for stopping by. Thanks a lot, brother. Thanks again to Chris Goldsmith for joining us. As he said, you can find him on Twitter at ChrisGoldsmith85. If you like this episode of Declassified, we'd love if you could subscribe and leave us a five-star review. As a new show, it really helps us grow and make sure that we can bring the content that you want to hear. As always, I'm Naveed Jamali for Newsweek. Newsweek.